All right. So today we are going to be going over the infamous Bitcoin white paper. By Craig Wright, yeah, asterisk, <laughs> question mark. Uh, so uh, if you don't have it in front of you already, uh, you can find the Bitcoin white paper at this link right here. Uh, it's pretty easy to get to. It's also quite a short read. It's only nine pages. And uh, one of those pages is references, and another page is just the output of Satoshi's computer. So it's actually quite a short paper. Uh, but in this paper, they go over a couple of really big concepts, and we'll unpack those concepts as we go through this. So uh, I asked this to the students when I first did this presentation, and uh, I asked, who is new to Bitcoin? That's true. Depends how you define new. Uh, okay. Oh, well, this is a safe space. If you're new to Bitcoin, you can, it's okay. You can raise your hand. <laughs> so who's bought and sold Bitcoin on an exchange? Everybody. Okay. Who holds their own private keys? Everybody. Awesome. Purchased something with Bitcoin. I assume everybody here uh, interacted with the Bitcoin blockchain. Right on. Who runs their own node? Awesome. And who has used the Lightning Network? Okay, quite a lot of adoption. Uh, when I asked this question in the UT class, like nobody raised their hand. They're completely new to Bitcoin. They had no idea about anything. So it was great. It was like they were a, uh, it was a blank canvas. So let's begin. So for this overview, uh, we're going to be going over a few concepts. The blockchain, of course, probably the most important thing on here. Uh, proof of work. The peer-to-peer -peer network, which often gets overlooked, but that is also quite the innovation uh, that Bitcoin uses underneath the hood. Uh, the incentives. Uh, why would you work in the first place? Uh, what's the point? Also, scalability. Like, does this actually scale to trillions of dollars worth of investment. Privacy, uh, you know, what you were talking about putting all of your financial data out in the open, like what are the concerns with that? And security, how do you not lose your coins? So uh, as we go through this paper, there's going to be some spooky language, which I would like to sort of demystify right here. So uh, who knows what uh, public and private keys are? Okay. Digital signatures. Are we all familiar with digital signatures? Hashing algorithms. Okay. Merkle trees. It's a fun one. And uh, Byzantine faults. Okay. We'll get into that last one. But uh, yeah, public and private keys, um, we don't really need to get into. Just that if you have a private key, it's like this magic ink in your magic pen. You can sign things. People can verify that you've signed with this key, uh, but you never give away what this key is. So it's a secret that you can protect, yet you can, in a way, trustlessly prove people that you hold it. And so digital signatures is 
what we do with our private key, hashing algorithms we'll get into, as well as Merkle trees and Byzantine faults. So don't be too scared by this language. Uh, it's really not that difficult of a concept to understand. So what is blockchain? What is a blockchain? Everybody has an idea. This, uh, this question is like a Rorschach test. Like, what do you think blockchain is? Sure, yeah. The cryptographic hash function, yeah. So it's, it's slightly reverse, where instead of each hash pointing to the next hash, it's each hash contains the previous hash. So you build on top of it. And we'll get into that. Append only. That's true. Because if you change anything, the hash will change. So we'll get into that. Um, uh, before I start, I want to give everybody here what's called an empowering promise. And uh, an empowering promise is a concept by the late Patrick Winston, who taught at MIT. Uh, he would promise everybody at his lecture that uh, what they will understand and what they will come away with. And he would be upfront with that at the beginning of the lecture. So uh, I want to make the promise to you all that by the end of this presentation, you will understand what a blockchain is. And you will have some questions, but you will understand what this is at its core and what problems it solves. So what problems does a blockchain solve? Let's get into that. Um, so I've heard global warming, it solves global warming, it solves um, world hunger, it solves all government corruption that ever existed and it will bring about this utopia all sorts of things. Uh, tracking bananas, that is a new one, but sure, let's throw that into the pile. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to just uh, go over a few key items of like, what does a blockchain really solve? Because there's a lot of uh, companies that promise to incorporate blockchain technology somehow in some zany way, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So we're going to get into exactly how a blockchain works and what problems it actually solves. So one problem that uh, a blockchain solves is the authenticity of data at the time of publishing. So let's say that uh, you were kidnapped uh, during your trip in Nicaragua and you're being held up for ransom and uh, the US government is willing to pay your ransom, but they want proof that you're alive. So what do you usually do? <laughs> they'll, they'll film some video of you holding up a newspaper and that newspaper will have today's date. And so that's a way of authenticating that you're alive at that point in time. So people do this, they publish things in the newspaper and we'll get into that um, also just on the internet. I mean, it's the great, greatest place on earth to publish things is on the internet. So. Uh, a blockchain allows you to prove uh, when you publish something at the time that you published it. That's one problem that it solves. Uh, consensus on the ordering of transactions. And uh, transactions doesn't necessarily have to mean money. Uh, it could be database transactions, which is another valid term. 
But if we're updating this shared database and the order is really important, uh, a blockchain helps solve the ordering of these transactions for multiple parties. Also, uh, the double spending of transactions. So this actually makes more sense with money. Um, so if I have a check and I can write you a check and then I can write my other friend a check and then my other friend a check, uh, I could just keep writing checks until one of you tries to cash it and you'll get the money. Another one of you tries to cash it and you won't. So that is a big problem uh, with digital checks because you can create an infinite number of them and give them to an infinite number of people. And so how do you prevent a check that is tied to a deposit from being given out multiple times? So what is double spending? So let's go over this in detail with just a quick example. So Alice wants to sell Bob a widget for $500. Bob shows proof of a $500 deposit. He goes down to the bank. The bank gives him a proof of deposit. He brings that back to Alice, shows it to Alice. Alice is convinced that Bob has $500 in the bank. So Alice is willing to do business with Bob. So Bob signs a check for $500 and gives it to Alice. Alice leaves to deposit the check. She wants to get her money right away. Uh, then Carol walks in. Carol wants to sell Bob a widget for $500. Bob still has this proof of a $500 deposit. And Alice hasn't made it to the bank just yet. So according to Carol, Bob still has this money. So, okay, Carol's willing to do business with Bob. Bob signs a check for $500 and gives it to Carol. Why not? Carol leaves to deposit the check. Uh, Alice has made it to the bank by now, and Bob's check to Alice clears. So now Alice has the money. Carol's check bounces at the bank, and Carol is screwed because the money is no longer there. So this is one example of a double spending problem. Uh, you can have a check to a deposit, and you can give it out multiple times, and then it becomes a race to who gets the money first. Bob receives two widgets for the price of one. Sneaky Bob. Okay, so let's do one more scenario. Uh, what is double spending? Banker's edition. Alice deposits $500 with Bob for safekeeping. Bob now has a reserve at Bob's bank. Carol wants to borrow $500 from Bob. Okay, well, Bob has $500, so he loans it out. Bob credits Carol $500. Now Eve wants to borrow $500 from Bob. Why not? Bob credits Eve $500. Cody gave it to Carol. <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, so now Carol and Eve, with their now they're flush with cash, they go out and they spend $1,000 at Dave's shop. And Dave also happens to bank with Bob. So he recognizes Carol and Eve's credit as being valid. <laughs> Bob's crazy. Bob's, so Alice and Dave go to withdraw their money from Bob and what happens? Boom. Oh, do we not see it? Yeah, bank goes bust. So this is a bank run. So this is what a bank run sort of looks like, uh, very oversimplified. But yeah, so uh, banks are allowed to do this thing called fractional reserve lending where they can lend out 
more money than they actually have in reserves. And uh, what the banks are banking on, pun intended, is that not everybody comes to withdraw all their money at once. But if that does happen, then the bank goes bankrupt very quickly. And this is like a 50% reserve. Um, banks, typically, I think like the regulation in the US is 20% reserves, although that might have been suspended recently. Uh, banks really don't have a lot of rules when it comes to fractional reserve. They can just kind of do whatever they want. And uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, take the word of the International Monetary Fund, uh, the King of Kings, the Bank of Banks. Uh, they released this paper in July of 2010 uh, talking about the sizable role of rehypothecation in the shadow banking system. Rehypothecation being another word for double spending. And uh, it was a big problem. This is actually a really interesting paper, and uh, I'll have a link to it in the resources. But uh, yeah, they specifically referenced the collapse of Lehman Brothers Bank. I don't know if anybody remembers that in 2008. Also, uh, AIG was another big company to go under, which was uh, really bad for the market as a whole. So yeah, during this time, uh, the entire world was going through a global financial crisis. Uh, everything was collapsing before all of our eyes. And so around the same time, uh, there had been a group of cryptographers that were sort of working on this issue, the issue of how do you prevent money from being double spent? especially as money was becoming increasingly digital. A lot of these banks interact with each other digitally, electronically. They don't, they don't pass physical paper around. So uh, that's where we get into Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, he had happened to release this paper. Uh, he originally privately released it to Wei Dai um, as he was asking Wei for uh, some advice. And... Uh, when he originally released this paper to Wei Dai, uh, there, was, there was something missing from this paper. Uh, can anybody guess what it is in the original draft of this paper? Blockchain. No, so this word shows up twice on this paper and only twice, and it's only in this first section. It's the word Bitcoin. So this was not called Bitcoin until right before Satoshi released it. Um, really, this was just a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Uh, that's what he talked about. But then uh, right before he went to release the paper, after he spoke with Wei, he decided to register Bitcoin.org and put a name to the title because uh, electronic cash sounds kind of boring. So yeah, that's how the name Bitcoin was born. Uh, I don't really know why he chose it. Uh, it might have to do with BitGold, which was Nick Sosbo's project. So yeah, well, this is the paper that we're going to get into. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? That's the real question. <laughs> so uh, this white paper was published on October 31st, I believe, in 2008. So still fresh off the heels of the global financial crisis. And uh, in this paper, there is an abstract and then there is the first page. And the first page, he basically goes over his reasons for wanting to release this. So Satoshi proposes a peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash that allows online payments to be sent directly to others without having to settle through a financial institution. So no central party. 
He mentions digital signatures as a part of the solution, but they do not prevent double spending. Digital signatures being the way that you can have a secret, some sort of secret that you keep that can become your identity, and you can use that secret to sign things on your behalf. And you can cryptographically prove that you signed it, and so it's sort of a way to attest to things like giving money away. So what do you use a digital signature for? Well, this was Satoshi's idea of a transaction. And uh, it's pretty simple. Um, you basically, the owner has their public key stated. Uh, the public key is the part of your secret that you're allowed to give out. Uh, we also have the idea that we hash it because maybe we don't want to give our public key out right away. Maybe we want to hash it first. And we give that out as something that you can basically send money to. Like, I have this identity, this public identity, send money to my identity. And uh, yeah, just give me a signature that it's my money. And so using public keys, private keys, signing things, you can sort of just pass money around. And you can sign money over to new people. And so that was Satoshi's idea of transactions. Uh, it's similar to Weidai's B-Money, in a sense. Uh, so that's what a transaction kind of looks like. This is a, a legacy transaction. Uh, looks kind of scary. Uh, also, I couldn't really fit all of it on the screen. And uh, newer transactions have way more information. Uh, so that's what it looks like underneath the hood. But yeah, so... Uh, what do we need for this, uh, for this electronic cash system? Well, Satoshi says that we need a way for the recipient to know that a sender did not sign the transaction over to someone else. Because we still have the problem of double spending. I can sign a transaction over to Alice. I can also sign it over to Carol. And then it becomes a race on who redeems the transaction first. So the only way to confirm this is to publicly announce all transactions on the network. Essentially, if we're all transacting with each other, we all need to be aware of what is the state of our, of our money system. We also need a system for participants to agree on a single transaction history. So we all need to be on the same page. Uh, this was a problem with uh, YDI's solution with his B-Money. Uh, so with B-Money, the idea was is that everybody had their own separate ledger. And you just sort of had to keep everyone's ledger, your ledger up to date with the people that you were doing business with. And then just somehow dynamically, everything would stay up to date. Uh, it's kind of similar to how banks operate today. Like banks do this thing called uh, double entry bookkeeping, where they just, banks will have a partnership with another bank and they just share their ledgers back and forth. And they, similar to how Lightning works. Um, but we need a way for everybody in the system, even people outside of this two-party exchange, to kind of know what is the transaction history of everything. Uh, also, the recipient needs to prove that when he accepts a transaction, that the network will agree that his claim was first. Because we don't want to have to race to the bank. We want to know that once we get a claim to a deposit, that it's ours. And we can just hold on to it. We don't have to spend it right away. We can just hold on to it and that is just as good as having it in your pocket. So uh, there was this idea that Satoshi really liked, and uh, he borrowed it from these two brothers. Well, actually, they're not brothers, but they were partners, uh, Stuart Haber and Scott Stornetta. Uh, so they were researchers that were working on uh, their own neat little solution, uh, and it was for a completely separate problem. 
so their business was essentially before DocuSign, they had a business where they wanted to be able to have someone attest to a document, the state of a document. Typically, it could be like a legal document, something that is signed. And you want to prove that you have that document, you have those signatures, and you want to prove that that document existed at a certain state and time and that it wasn't changed. And not only that it wasn't changed, but that other documents that come after it, they have a particular order. Uh, so this was their idea for uh, linked timestamping. And so what they would do is basically you would have a document, you would hash it, which we'll get into what hashing is. And let's say you have this hash document and you want to prove that this document came after this document. Well, all you have to do is take your document, you hash it again, and then you hash it again with this document. So we'll get into what hashing is, but basically what you're attesting to is that the only way you come up with this H number is if you take this document and this document. So these documents are linked and you know what the order that these documents came in because the only way you produce this H is to recreate this in this order. And then you just keep carrying it forward. Every time you want to add a new document to your list of documents, you just continuously hash it in this running hash that you have. And the only way you can reconstruct this is if you do everything in the same order that you did originally. So you can't change this order at all or else these values will completely change. And uh, this will hold up in court. Uh, cryptographic hashing is seen as something that uh, will hold up in a, in a courtroom. So what is hashing? We keep talking about hashing. We should probably get into it. So uh, hashing is like producing a cryptographic fingerprint for a piece of data. Um, it represents the exact condition of the contents of that data. And uh, if you change one little thing, like if you had a Word document and you ran it through a hash function and you got this fingerprint back, if you then went back into that document and you changed one little thing, like you added a period or removed the period, uh, changed a lowercase letter to an uppercase letter, the number that you would get, the, the hash that you would get in return would be completely different. It would be completely different. So there's no way to change anything once you hash a document. You can change the document, but it will change the hash. So hashing uh, is a one-way computation, which means that if I take a document, I could take any size document. In fact, I took the Bitcoin white paper itself and I hashed it. Now, the Bitcoin white paper is not this big. It is much bigger than this. But when we run it through this hashing function, uh, this, this little computation will basically take this entire contents of the white paper and it'll spit out this number. And you could do this too. So if you went and did this on your own computer, we use SHA-256 as our hashing function. That's the name of the function. If you did this on your computer, you would get the same exact number. And then if I went and I changed something in that paper and then I gave it to you and said, here, here's this paper. And you ran it through your hashing function because you thought maybe I was being shady and maybe I changed something. Maybe I didn't actually give you the Bitcoin white paper. Maybe I uh, changed the name Satoshi to Craig Wright. And it's like, here you go. I, I, I made this you would get a completely different number. So it's a one-way computation. 
It reduces any size message into a fixed length of pseudo-random characters. And we'll get into why it's pseudo-random. Uh, it's infeasible to predict or reverse this computation. So until you run this through here, you have no idea what these numbers are going to be. However, it is deterministic. So if other people run this file or any other file through a hashing function, you will all get the same number. So it's not completely random, but there's no way to predict what output you're going to get beforehand. Uh, and the same message always results in the same hash. Also, uh, it's a one-way computation in the sense that obviously this number is a lot smaller than the white paper. So there is information that is lost. You can't reverse this. This only goes one way. So this is kind of useful because let's say I'm not hashing something obvious. Maybe I'm hashing a secret. And I don't want you to know the secret, but I want to show you proof that I have it and that I know it. And maybe I'll reveal that secret to you later. And then you can prove that I did in fact know that secret because I gave you this hash. And once you have my secret, you can calculate this hash. And you can see that I was telling the truth. That at the time I gave you this hash, I did know the secret because I knew this hash. So hashing is incredibly useful. You can do all sorts of cool things with it. Uh, link timestamping is just one of the cool things that you can do with it because you can sort of create this chain of documents that you hash into the next and create this structure that you attest to that you can't modify. So uh, this H right here is a hash function. And what we're doing is we're taking the document. So yeah, we're concatenating. So let's say, for example, we take this document. We're hashing it because another great thing about hashing is it reduces the size. Like we, we're not trying to store the document. We just want to prove that we have the document at a certain state. We want to prove the content. So we take the hash, and then we can hash it again, but this time we can hash it with the previous hash of a previous document. So you could just, you could just use these hash functions interchangeably over and over again to create these really cool structures. And what's cool about it is like you can only recreate th this final hash. So uh, what this company would do, the company was called Surety. Uh, they existed back in the 90s is uh, they would allow companies a way to essentially prove documents that they had and that they had signed in the order in which that they were published. And so they would use hashing in order to prove this and they would calculate everything to a final hash. And then they would publish that hash in the newspaper. They publish in the New York, New York Times. And I think they still actually publish in the New York Times. So all they had to do was publish like this 32 byte hat or 32 bit, no, 32 byte hash and really small piece of data. Uh, but if you wanted to recreate that hash, you essentially had to have all these documents and you had to hash them in this order. And that's the only way you could recreate the hash. And so that was a way of proving that this is true. Does that make sense? Anybody have any questions? Okay. So uh, Satoshi decided that he was going to take this idea and uh, sort of change it up a little bit. So he first had the idea of a timestamp server. 
So uh, what's really cool about doing this, essentially just having this running hash where you just keep hashing items into this running computation, is that uh, it does sort of present this order in which uh, data is added to this hash or digested into this hash. And so if you have a sense of order, you could sort of, uh, you have a sense of time. And so uh, is anybody familiar with what a time server is for computers? So uh, time servers are really important for computers. And in fact, it's, it's really important for computers to be able to keep track of time. So every electronic device, your watch, your phone, every little thing, um, they actually have this uh, little crystal inside of them. It's a quartz crystal. And uh, all this quartz crystal does is it, bounce, it bounces an electrical pulse back and forth forever. And a computer uses that to keep track of a sense of time. It's like a ticking of a clock. And uh, computers really need to know what time it is. Uh, if you ever had an issue with your computer where you ripped the battery out and you just left it like that for a year, and you go to plug it in one day, and then uh, all your clocks are reset. Uh, it's reset to like 12 midnight at some time in the 1970s. You're like, what the heck? And then you try to go on the internet, and then uh, the internet doesn't work because your computer has a completely different time than the rest of the internet. And so your computer just doesn't know how to talk to any other computer because your computer's sense of time is completely wrong. So being on the same time is really important to computers. And Satoshi sort of had this idea of creating a time server where we don't actually have to have an absolute time. We just kind of need to know the order of things. And we can have a sort of relative time. And we can do this by just having this long running hash that we keep hashing other items into. And it keeps the sense of order, therefore a sense of time. So a chain of block hashes. This is essentially how it works. You hash a block of data, could be anything, uh, and then you widely publish the hash. This proves that the data must have existed at the time of publishing in order to calculate that hash. Same as pulling up a newspaper in a video. Like there's no way you could have shot that video at that time with that newspaper unless you did it at that time. Also, each block includes the previous hash forming a chain where each newly hashed block reinforces the ones before it. But we still have a problem um, that we sort of talked about in the very beginning and we never addressed it really. And that was who gets to publish the hash? Because we were talking about an issue of uh, centralization and Satoshi talks about the issue of centralization. And it's really cool that we have this thing that we can do where we're hashing data over and over, uh, but, but who gets to do this? Like, who gets to publish this? And then how do we all agree on which hash that we go with? Let the government do it. Yeah, just elect a central party and just we'll, we'll all agree that this one person, Bob, for example, because he's so good at running a bank and uh, writing checks, we'll just, we'll have him publish the hash, right? And we'll believe what he says. Uh, you could sort of get away with this because even if Bob is a liar and a cheat, like he can't forge the mathematics that go into this. So you could have Bob publish the hash, uh, but then uh, that could be problematic because then what if you want to add something to the hash and Bob says no? 
no, I don't want your, your block of data in my hash. So he, he kind of becomes this gatekeeper. So how do we sort of decentralize this process? How do we publish this hash uh, that we kind of use as a, as a time server? And how do we all agree on who gets to publish the next one? So uh, Adam Back had this uh, concept of doing something called proof of work. And uh, he originally did not think of this uh, for transactions or money. Uh, he wanted to use this as a way to stop abuse of resources on the internet, uh, just mainly spam. And so the idea was is that the server would issue a random cryptographic puzzle to the user. And uh, the, you're essentially, your computer would have to brute force this puzzle. Uh, there was no shortcut to it. Uh, you had to brute force it. Uh, it. It would use hashing, I believe. Uh, it's been a while since I've looked at his paper. Uh, but yeah, it was essentially some puzzle. You couldn't cheat. You had to brute force it, or your computer had to brute force it. And it would take you time to solve it. So the user would have to run these computations until they find a solution to the puzzle. And then the user offers their solution, which is very easy to verify. So these puzzles are hard to solve, but easy to verify once you get the answer. And then the server would use this to basically meter the people that are asking uh, the server for resources. Like, hey, slow down. Don't just give me a, a thousand requests in one second. Solve this puzzle first. So if the user has to take time to solve this puzzle to get their email, maybe you would do that because your computer is actually pretty powerful. It might be able to solve this puzzle in just like a second. Uh, but if you have a server that wants to spam you with a million emails, well, those seconds add up. So this was a cool way to combat spam. And uh, Satoshi liked the idea. And so he cites it in his paper. But uh, he wanted to use it for something different. And he wanted uh, this proof of work, where we could maybe use this proof of work to figure out, well, how do we all agree on who gets to publish the next hash? And so this is pretty much it. You take a hash of the block of data plus some random variable, call it the nonce, and you get this 256 random bits that come out the other end. Same as that, that hash that you saw of the Bitcoin white paper. You just get some random fixed length string of characters. And uh, the cool thing about hashes, like we were talking about, uh, if you change one thing that you're hashing, it changes the entire hash. So uh, usually that's a bad thing. You don't want to do that because you're trying to prove the, the contents that you're hashing, that you didn't change them. But uh, we kind of flip it on its head here. It's like, no, actually, we do want to change the hash. So we'll take our block of data, but we'll also have this variable that we can increment. and We can constantly generate new hashes, and those hashes will be completely random. You change one bit of input, and the output will change completely. That's the great thing about hash functions. So with that being said, what are the odds of finding uh, these 256 random bits, completely random, uh, and evenly distributed? So you get this random string of characters. There's no patterns in this data. There's no way to predict what the next hash is going to be. It's all completely random. So then what are the odds of doing this and you finding uh, a value that's below 2 to the power of 250? 
So a number of preceding zeros. So let's say like six zeros. So you have these random numbers that are spitting out here. We keep changing this variable. We keep getting new random bits. What are the odds that you get a set of random bits that have six zeros in the front? Yeah, it's like it, it doubles each time. So it's like uh, if it's just one leading zero, you have a 50% chance. If it's two leading zeros, you have 25%. Three, it just keeps having. Because uh, we're using this as a threshold. So this is 2 to the power of 256. So the, the hash function that we use is called SHA-256. And yeah, so the, the number space, like the, the actual space of numbers that this hash function can choose from, and it will choose uniformly, uh, it's, it's 2 to the power of 256. And so um, I like to offer as an example that uh, 2 to the power of 260 is the number of atoms in the known universe. So we're just slightly below that. Huh? Yeah, who's counting? It's like 10 to the power of 87, and I think that converts to 2 to the power of 260. But uh, yeah, so there's a lot of numbers. There's like this, you, this massive pool of numbers, the biggest lottery system. Like you just this massive pool of random numbers that can pop out of this lottery ball. And you want to find one that has like a bunch of zeros in the front. That's going to be really hard to do. And what if it's 2 to the power of 249? What if we add another zero to it? Like it just gets harder and harder and harder. And you have to guess because we're using a hash function, a good one, that you can't cheat. There's no patterns in the data. You can't determine what output you're going to get beforehand. So you have to brute force it. You have to just keep guessing until you find a number uh, below a certain threshold. So that seems pretty simple. Um, yeah, you just keep guessing until you find a number that's below a certain threshold. And we can sort of all agree on what that threshold is, whether we want to make it easier or harder. We just add the number of zeros or remove the number of zeros we're looking for. And then how would you prove your work? If you, if you found the right number, how would, you, how would you prove it? So quick question. It's very easy. It's, it's on the slide, like how you would prove it. So the way you would prove it uh, is you would basically go to all your peers and say, hey, I found the answer. And then they would say, I don't believe you, prove it. And you'd say, okay, well, here's, here's my variable. Try it yourself. Take the block, put the variable in, you will get the answer. So it's very easy to, to validate this. Uh, you, know, you have to maybe do this a million times to get, to, get a, to get a number that satisfies this condition. But once you find that number, and you want to tell everyone else, well, it's very easy. You just give them the number and they, they do it themselves. And they're like, oh yeah, you're right. You got the right number. And uh, so that's proof of work. That's pretty much what it is. So uh, it's 256 random bits of data. So that's like ones and zeros. Um, if you actually look at a hash, uh, on your computer, or if you look up it up on a block explorer, it's encoded in hexadecimal, which is, if you think of decimal as one through 10 or zero through nine, 
hexadecimal would be uh, one through 16. So it's just a, the, the number base, we're all familiar with base 10, a hexadecimal is base 16. So you'll see like, instead of zero through nine, you'll see zero through F. Um, so these 256 random bits will be encoded in hexadecimal, it ends up being uh, 32 characters. Yeah, because a, a byte is, I could be wrong on that, but it's, it's, it's much smaller. So it's like 32 characters, yeah. Um, so it's not that long. Uh, and it's random characters, zero through F. And uh, you can choose to compress that even more with different encodings, but that's what it actually looks like. And we'll, we'll get into what it looks like, actually. Uh, so yeah, so this is a proof of work blockchain. Uh, you have a block. You have all the transactions. Essentially, anything you want to commit to this hash chain. Like We use it for transactions because uh, Bitcoin is all about transactions. But you can use this for anything, really. Like if you, again, if you wanted to attest to data, documents, like anything you want to put in this block, you can. And then you always include the previous hash. So the only way that you can reconstruct the hash for this block is if you include the hash for this block. So they're always linked together. Uh, and then you have this nonce value. It's an, it stands for number you only use once. This is your variable. So miners are constantly changing this number, recalculating. The hash for this block until they find a variable that gives them the, the zeros that they want. It gives them a, a hash value below a difficulty threshold or difficulty target. So uh, this is what a block header looks like. Uh, this one is for block, a uh, recent block, uh, 750,867. So that's block number 750867. And you can see that the ID of this block, this is the hash. Uh, that's a valid hash. So all the data that's included in this block header, you can hash it all up. Here's the nonce value right here. So you take this number plus all this other stuff that you want to attest to. Um, the Actually, uh, when you actually hash the block, it's not all this information, so there's some added information. But essentially, you take the key information that you want to attest to with this nonce number, you hash it, and you get this. I don't think you attest to Yeah, some of this you don't need to attest to. It's, it's, you only really need to attest to the, the Merkle root, the, uh, we'll get into what the Merkle root is, the nonce. Um, there's a couple other things I think you need to attest to, but yeah, so you, you pick out the, the data that you're attesting to, you hash it together with your magic number, your nonce number here, and the miners found this number. Uh, it is 657,930,235. So they, they tried quite a few times, uh, but they eventually got this. And look at all those zeros. It's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. That is a lot of zeros. Uh, it is really difficult to find that. What's that? Yeah, so because we're looking at this in hex, it's actually like, it's, it's actually two numbers at a time. No, the, the zero is actually 
two bits. So it's it's two zeros at a time. Yeah. So it's it's actually um one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine bytes of zeros. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's tomato tomato, like because you can turn this into an integer and look at it. Yeah. Yeah, it it this is the magic number that you're incrementing to like constantly change this number. So they they tried 656 million and it didn't work. And then they finally found this number where combined with everything else they actually got a hash that has all these zeros. Yeah. Yeah, so so fun fact when when Bitcoin first was released uh all they had was this nonce value this is your randomness. Like this is what you could change in order to calculate new hashes. Because uh, you, you had to calculate this a number of times. You, you needed a, a range that you could just like generate random hashes until you found the, the one that matches the criteria. Uh, so they ran out of space. So this is a four byte field. So they actually like, they were able to fit it in this one, but uh, the the difficulty for for mining a block on Bitcoin now is 200 exahashes. Uh, I forget how many zeros it is. Like 20 zeros. It's it's a it's a lot of zeros. Yeah. So it actually requires so much guessing that they they run out of space constantly in this in this field. So this this nonce field is actually not big enough. Like they they'll max this out and they still haven't found a valid hash. So then they'll start like messing with other things like the, uh, the timestamp. The timestamp doesn't need to be absolute. Like it could be within like two hours or something of the previous block or something like that. Uh, so they kind of mess around with the timestamp. Like miners will find all sorts of places they can sort of get away with tweaking numbers um, in order to just, they just essentially, they need the entropy. They need this randomness that they can use to, to churn through so that they can keep generating new hashes until they find the one that will get them the reward. Uh, so yeah, let's get into that. Uh, why would you do this? Like, why, why would you try 657 million times to guess a number? That requires a lot of electricity. Electricity is not cheap. It's, well, yeah, what a waste of time. We're just like standing here boiling the oceans, doing all this unnecessary computation. But uh, let, let's say you do, uh, you do find a block. Um, so how do you communicate? Uh, well, Bitcoin has a peer-to-peer -peer network. So if you want to broadcast a transaction or you found a block and you want to broadcast your block, said, hey, I found this block. Uh, I want everybody to know about it. So we have this peer-to-peer -peer network in Bitcoin where um, all these computers are Bitcoin nodes and they all talk to each other. And we just share blocks and transactions. That's all we really do. So uh, each new transaction, uh, if you want to create a transaction on the network, you just broadcast it to your peers. So let's say this is Alice, this is Bob, this is Carol. Uh, so Alice is like, hey, I have a new transaction. I want everyone else to know about it. So she broadcasts it to Bob. She broadcasts it to Carol. And then uh, Carol's like, okay, I got this transaction. It seems legit. I checked it. The signatures match. Nobody's trying any funny business. So I'll forward it to uh, Dave. And then I'll forward it to Earl. And then I'll forward it to Jerry. 
Yeah. Well, Jerry, I don't know. Jerry me a girl's name. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, everybody's sort of just like, we all act as relays. We, if we want to send a transaction out, then we send it to our peers, our peers validate it, and then they relay it out to their peers. And it just sort of propagates like that. So each peer on this network collects transactions, validates them, and then just passes them along. And that's pretty much how it works. Uh, nodes also cache new transactions in memory, and that's what we call the mempool. Mempool doesn't get talked about enough. It's always just blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very useful to do this because when the blocks come along, the blocks are gonna have all these transactions in them, or they're gonna attest to all of these transactions. But man, would it be a drag if you had to download a block full of transactions all the time. Especially like if it's like, hey, I've already seen these transactions. Like it's been, they've been flung around the network already. I've already seen them and collected them. Why are you gonna send them to me again in a block? It's not necessary. So we, we do have this thing called the mempool where um, essentially when you, when you send out a block, uh, you don't have to send the transactions with it. You just have to have something called a Merkle root, which we'll get into. Uh, yeah, so this actually works pretty well. And then uh, what about producing blocks? Yeah, so now let's say like uh, Alice decides to become a miner. So she has a little mining hat on. Uh, so yeah, so what do you do as a miner? Well, you're already collecting all these transactions from the network. So you already have this pool of transactions on your computer. Uh, and they all have fees attached to them, and we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, so you collect up all these transactions, and you decide, okay, I'm just going to put them all into a block. And then we're going to try and calculate that hash that is below a certain value or below a certain uh, difficulty target. And then when we find that hash, we'll just, we'll just, same thing we do with transaction, we'll just broadcast it out. And then other nodes will check my block to see if my block is valid. They'll, they'll check my nonce value. They'll make sure that I'm not cheating. Uh, and if everything's good, then they'll just, they'll add it to the tip of their chain. So everybody has this blockchain they're keeping track of. And if you produce a valid block and you tell it to your friends and they tell it to their friends, they're like, yeah, this looks valid. This looks good. Then they just add it to their, to their chain. And, uh, it just sort of works. And it works because this, this part right here, try to calculate a hash, this part's hard. So uh, it actually takes time for blocks to be produced. Uh, the way that Bitcoin is designed, uh, the difficulty target, how many zeros are required for a valid block, it changes. Uh, and it changes so that we kind of hover around 2,016 blocks every two weeks, or about on average a block every 10 minutes. So yeah, so it doesn't, it actually takes some time for a block to get produced. So like these nodes have plenty of time to see if your block is valid versus anybody else. And then they just add it to the tip of their chain. And yeah, so why would you go through all this trouble? Um, because there's an incentive. So uh, when you produce a block, uh, the first transaction in each block, uh, it's a special transaction called the Coinbase. And uh, it is the only transaction in a block that's allowed to print money. Uh, all other transactions are not allowed to print money. Uh, if you have a transaction, it has inputs, it has outputs. Uh, the inputs better be greater than the outputs. 
if the inputs are less than the outputs, then you're printing money and your transactions immediately invalid. No one will broadcast it. You will be banned and uh, people will speak illy of you. So uh, yeah, there's one special transaction in the block that is allowed to print money and that is the Coinbase. Not to be confused with Coinbase, the exchange. Uh, so yeah, you anybody that produces a block, any miners, they create this transaction and they give themselves money. And like, wow, that might go out of control. You can just like give yourselves money and anytime you create a block, uh, that seems crazy. Uh, but they can't just give themselves any amount of money. They actually uh, have to give themselves a certain amount of money. And the amount of money that they're allowed to reward themselves is based on essentially this distribution curve. Uh, so yeah, so it's like, 50 coins, and you can sort of like reduce this to like a, a different algorithm, but essentially what this boils down to is that in the very beginning when I is zero, this is like a, consider this like a little loop. So this goes zero, do the equation, then I equals one, do the equation, I equals two. So you kind of sort of start out to where um, you have these epochs. And so every time you do this equation and I changes, then you have a new epoch. And so in the first epoch, when I equals zero, uh, you essentially, you get to print 2 million coins, I believe. It might be more. Uh, but you can only print uh, like 50 coins at a time. So if you, in the early days of Bitcoin, if you found a block, then you were allowed to award yourself with 50 Bitcoins. It was 10 million? Yeah. No, I, I forget what the actual like distribution is. Uh, but when it first started out, it was like 50 coins a block. And after a certain number of coins are rewarded, then we go into a new epoch and then I increments by one. And now this number is halved. And so with every epoch, Okay, so the first epoch was 10 million coins rewarded, and then the next would be five. Yeah. So uh, this is what this looks like on a pretty graph. That's the distribution curve. Yeah. So uh, in the early days of Bitcoin, so uh, this is the inflation percentage of the, of the Bitcoin's uh, economy. So as you can see, in the early days of Bitcoin, we had extremely high inflation. Uh, just coins were just being printed like crazy. Uh, you had the maximum block reward, plus there was no difficulty in mining at all. So there's just, we were just printing money like crazy in the, in the early days. But then it starts to taper off as things get more and more difficult. The difficulty adjustment kicks in, things get increasingly difficult. We're distributing all of our 10 million coins. And then we reach the end of our epoch, and then we switch to a new epoch. And now you can see that we just have this boom, this step down. And so the distribution of coins just keeps having with these epochs. And it's just going to keep going like that until we get to the final epoch where there will be no more coins being minted. It'll be zero. And uh, then we also have this other curve, which... Uh, that's a good question. So early days 
who cared about fees in the early days? Cause like you can make all this money. Yeah. So at some point this is going to end and then there will be no more coins to reward. Uh, it'll, I mean, it, it'll get so low that it, you won't actually be getting that much Bitcoin. So, but it will officially end sometime in 2140 will be the, the last time any Bitcoin is rewarded um, as a Coinbase. Like, it's the last, it'll be the last time you can print Bitcoin. Uh, and then we'll, our distribution, like that, the number of coins that will actually be in, well, not in circulation, but that would have been printed will taper off until you can't print anymore. We'll be at a hard cap. This is, this is hard money, ultrasound money. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, once we get to this point, or even before we get to this point, and in fact, just so you know where we are, we're right there. That's where we are right now. So uh, currently the block reward is 6.25 Bitcoins um, and we're getting close to a halving. It's gonna happen in uh, 2024. Yeah, we're still really early. But yeah, at some point, like it's, we're gonna run out of free Bitcoins to give away with each block. Uh, and then uh, how are we gonna pay for everything? Uh, what is gonna be the incentive? And so the incentive is gonna have to be transaction fees. That's, that's the only way it's going to work. Um, yeah, there, there's like talks about like tail emissions and the, like other ways to just like keep the money printer going for a while. Uh, but that would require a hard fork. It, it would be really difficult to get everyone to agree to that. That's true. Yeah, so the market value of Bitcoin can also go up. In either case, um, if you look at a transaction fee as like what it costs you to uh, transact on the Bitcoin blockchain, fees will go up either way. Either the percentage of fees that you pay will go up or the price of Bitcoin will go up, meaning like the sort of the, the value of that fee that you're paying, even if it's low, um, will be worth more. So uh, fees are going to have to take over in the end. Forty? No, uh, it's like 17 cents or a dollar. Yeah, it, it depends. Uh, the, the fee market's kind of interesting in Bitcoin. So it does have like its off-peak hours. Uh, so it can be as low as like 17 cents. Oh, okay. Constantine, you had a question. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a good amount of time. If we can't think of something by then, we'll just like all move to Ethereum or something. <laughs> it's a joke. No, they don't have a solution either. Um, 
Oh man, I could do a whole lecture on the failures of Ethereum, but that's a story for a different day. Uh, so yeah, so uh, this is a long time. Like we're looking at uh, the amount of Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin, the distribution of Bitcoin. But uh, one thing that's easy to overlook is like during this whole period of time, uh, we're minting blocks and we have to store those blocks. And so how big is the blockchain going to be in year 2140? And is, every is everyone going to be able to store their own copy of the blockchain in 2140? And, and how big is that going to be? So uh, this was always a concern and it's, it's made a concern in the paper itself in that uh, scalability is a concern. Uh, so we need a way to make these blocks as small as possible. And uh, so this is the uh, initial idea that Satoshi had uh, using something called a Merkle tree. And uh, this is a Merkle tree. So Merkle tree is pretty simple. Uh, you basically, you lay out all the transactions that you want to put in a block. Uh, you don't actually put the transactions in a block. You just put their hashes because hashes are much smaller. And we don't need to send the transactions. We've already sent them previously. Uh, we just want to attest to them. We, we're, we're really publishing that the transactions are in a particular order to prevent double spending. So we don't have to send the whole transaction. So what we can do is just bundle up all the transactions we want to put into a block that we want to attest to. And then we hash each one because hashes are much smaller to store. And then we can do this pretty cool thing uh, where instead of doing a block chain or a hash chain, you can do a hash tree. You can do a tree of hashes. So we can take these two transactions, hash them together to create this hash. We can take these two transactions, hash them together, create this hash. And then we can take these two hashes, hash them together, and then we can create this root hash. And so this root hash really attests to all these transactions down here and if you want to prove that, like, okay, sure, buddy, you give me this root hash, you see my transactions in there, uh, I don't believe you. Prove it. Well, this is how you prove it. Um, you just show them the transaction. And what's really cool is you don't have to show them all these other transactions to recreate this hash. You only have to show them your transaction plus these other hashes you use to sort of walk up the tree. So... If you want to prove transaction three is in this root, you just take transaction three, which is this guy here. You also take this hash you created here. You don't need this transaction. You can just take this or this combined hash over here. And so you really only need three pieces of information. You just need this, this, and this. With this, you can recreate this. And with this, you can recreate this. So it's a really nice compact way of being able to prove that your transaction is inside this root hash. And all you really need is a transaction plus a couple pieces of data to, to reconstruct your branch of the tree. And so for an actual Bitcoin block, if we were gonna go and look at a Bitcoin block, yeah, you don't need to put a bunch of transactions in here. You really just need to put this. And this Merkle root um, was created using all the transactions that fit in that are supposed to be in this block. 
And you already have the transactions on your computer because these transactions are flying around on the network. You're storing them in your memory pool. So you already have these transactions on your computer. You really just need to be able to reconstruct this route. So that's actually really useful because you can have a Bitcoin block. The block can say, hey, I have these transactions in here. Here's how I'll prove it to you. Here's the Merkle route. You have the transactions. Recreate this route. And so you do that. He's like, okay, I have the transactions. I'll hash them in this, this order. And then I get this. And then I know that you're telling the truth because I can reconstruct this number with the same transactions that you're attesting to. So that's a really cool way to uh, save on space. So an actual block can just uh, contain this, this Merkle root, and it's attesting that all these transactions are actually in the block. So that's pretty cool, because it means you can also delete this. Um, if you really want to, you can delete this from your hard drive. Because uh, maybe you only care about this transaction, and you don't care about these other transactions. And this is where uh, pruning comes into play. So uh, right now, the Bitcoin blockchain is, um, it's, it's over 500 gigabytes, which is actually not bad for over 10 years of uh, global financial transaction data. Uh, but you can prune that down to like just like two gigabytes if you really wanted to. Uh, well, because there is a limit, um, there is a limit. Uh, so the, the amount of data that you can store in a block is capped at, it's kind of dubious. It's like one megabyte, but it's really like four megabytes. Uh, and so you are storing this root hash, but there is a couple other things that, uh, you do commit to in the block. Like this, this isn't everything. There is more stuff that you do put in the block, uh, especially when you get to uh, Bitcoin scripts. Um, so you can, there, there's actually, you can end up storing a lot of day in the blockchain. Like people use op returns to like put their wedding anniversary or like, yeah, yeah. Like, so there are opportunities to store stuff in a block um, and that does add up. So uh, this is just kind of like a high level overview. Um, there's actually like two different kind of ways of looking at this. There's the block itself, which contains more data, but then there's just the block header. So what we were looking at earlier was the block header. An actual block will have more uh, data in it, but really all you need is this block header. Uh, you, you don't really need the rest of the information if it's not important to you. So uh, Satoshi actually goes into this uh, and he has this thing called SPV, Simple Payment Verification where if you're only interested in this, to just making sure this one transactions in a block, then you don't need all the other data that can be stored in a block. You really don't need the block at all. You just need the block headers because the block headers have this really important compact information, which is the hash of the previous block, which is important, you know, the hash of the block itself and this Merkle root, which attests to all the transactions that are in that block. So if you don't care about all the other stuff, uh, you're not running a full node, you're not validating every single transaction, you, you really just wanna be able to have like a cool light wallet and just worry about your own transaction, then you don't even need to look at blocks. You, you can just kind of look at these block headers 
and you can prove that your transactions within this block here just by the block header, just by the information that is in the block header. And these block headers are really small. They're just like, um, God, I think if you download all the block headers for the entire Bitcoin blockchain, it's only like 50 megabytes or something. It's, it's really, really compact. So um, yeah, the Satoshi was really forward thinking in this and making sure that you could do this. And Yeah. You will run out of combinations. Oh, you think for hashing? For solving the the hash? Yeah, you can only put so many transactions in a block, though. Yeah, we, we can go over that um, later. Yeah, yeah, because there's more competition to get into a block. So the fees will go up. I mean, that's the dream. That's the dream that Bitcoin becomes so valuable and the transactions themselves become so valuable. Uh, Cause right now it's like, I can send you a transaction and it costs us like 40 cents, 50 cents. And I'm just sending you some money. But in the future, it could be that a transaction is settling like millions of dollars worth of economic activity. That it's Oh yeah. Or, or there's that one Satoshi that's just worth so much money and somebody has got to have their hands on it. Yeah, that rare ordinal number. So, so I guess like uh, going into this and um, uh, combining and splitting values, like transactions are pretty cool. Uh, you can you could sort of have like all these inputs, and these inputs don't necessarily have to be all your inputs. Like these could be inputs from other people and these outputs can go to different people. So you can like, kind of like have these collaborative transactions and they can get pretty crazy. I mean, this is like kind of like what a coin join transaction looks like. And so these transactions don't just have to be me buying a cup of coffee off of you. Like these transactions can be settling millions of dollars worth of economic activity. Um, so yeah, so at some point like the blocks are going to just become full all the time. There's going to be a lot of competition to get into a block. And we'll, we'll be on a layer two using Lightning to buy a cup of coffee. But really, like, we're going to be settling these massive transactions. So, yeah, exchanges are already doing it. Yeah. So uh, one other point I want to get into uh, before we get to the end is uh, the privacy model. 
So uh, this is something that's in the white paper. So Satoshi's kind of laying out that, you know, the traditional privacy model is you have to identify yourself and then you have these transactions. They have to go through a trusted central authority. And it's that central authority that deals with your counterparties. And they also have to deal with the central authority. And they are the ones that are kind of the gatekeeper. And then, uh, then there's this line of privacy behind all this. So like maybe PayPal won't tell the public about your dealings, but they can tell the government. But anyways, like all these people know what's going on about your transactions. So uh, there's this thin line between whatever central bank you're using to do your banking versus the public. Whereas the new privacy model is, okay, your transactions are public, but we're not sure who the identity is because uh, I don't know if I want to scroll all the way back. Uh, screw it. We'll do it just to kind of make this point. Um, so this is sort of like your identity, this public key, but we're hashing it. And so like we we're talking with hashes is that, you know, hashing is great for attesting to this data that, you had it at a certain point of time and this is the state of the data, but it's also good for the reverse. If you don't give out your public key, but you just give out this hash, then people don't, don't know what this public key is. They know what the hash is, but they can't reverse this hash. They can't figure out what you put into this hash to create it. So it sort of protects your identity. Um, so that's kind of useful. Uh, what's interesting is that when Bitcoin was first released, they actually did not hash public keys. They just <laughs> you just had your public keys on the blockchain. Uh, but they they upgraded that to pay to pub key hash, and so now your identity is not necessarily tied to your transactions. However, this line is very thin. So even though your identity is not necessarily tied to a transaction, it's very easy to if you have many transactions look at all those transactions and then try and bridge this gap, figure out who is this person. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of things you can do to protect your privacy. And there's a lot of uh, privacy minded people in Bitcoin that are building really amazing things to protect your privacy, to kind of make this line thicker, as thick as possible. But then there's also companies that are trying to break through this, this barrier, like uh, chain analysis. And governments, yeah, the IRS hiring thousands of new agents. What are they going to be up to? Yeah. So this was the idea of a privacy model, um, but it's it's not necessarily better. It's it's different. So instead of like your information being sort of shared with a third party, but it's kept away from the public, now your transactions are out in public, and you have to make sure that this line does not get crossed. Um, yeah. So. That's the privacy model for Bitcoin. Also, uh, I wanted to touch up on this. So at the end of the paper, uh, he kind of goes into this uh, thing called calculations. And uh, what's interesting about it is that he sort of talks about how uh, if you have a situation where you have a bunch of people colluding on the Bitcoin network to 
produce a competing blockchain. Uh, so you have a bunch of people that get together, maybe they're paid by some government actor, maybe they're just, they just feel like they're gonna make a lot of money if they do this, but they get together and they start mining a blockchain that either changes the rules or they're censoring transactions and they're doing something that uh, other people uh, on the network don't necessarily agree with, uh, but they're creating this competing chain. Um, and we've had that happen in Bitcoin. Like we've had Bitcoin Cash where they branched off and they created a competing chain or uh, Bitcoin Satoshi's vision is an interesting one. But uh, th there is this like interesting debate where it's like, well, proof of work is like an open thing. Like anybody can, anybody can decide to invest in doing proof of work and mining blocks and producing blocks. And uh, some of those people can have an agenda. They can have an agenda where they censor transactions. Uh, they can have an agenda where they try to force consensus changes on the network. So uh, what happens if you have enough people get together and they try to take over your network or they try to bring down your network? And so this is actually a very old computer problem. It's called the Byzantine Generals problem. And so uh, we deal with this problem all the time in real life and we don't even know it. So I'll give you a good example. Um, does anybody have any examples of their own of where this problem crops up in real life besides Bitcoin? Spam. I, I don't know about spam. I'll give you a good one. Um, safety systems and aircraft deal with this problem. Yeah, so there, there was a, there's actually a, a flight, I forget the name of the flight, but um, they had a problem where there's multiple sensors on the plane that detects this thing called icing, where ice accumulates on the wings and the ice can actually jam up the machinery so that the wings can't actuate. And so they have all these sensors to detect icing and it's a distributed system. But uh, a problem can arise where you have sensors that are failing, but they're not saying that they're failing. They're just saying that there's no ice on the plane when there really is ice on the plane. So if you have multiple sensors, because you have all this redundancy built into the plane, uh, and some of those sensors are saying that there's ice, warning, some of those sensors are saying that there's no ice, how do you reach consensus on whether there's ice or not on the wing of the plane? And this goes beyond just uh, safety systems in an uh, aircraft or in any other system. Um, network routing systems. Uh, you can have network equipment that says like, hey, uh, uh, I'm routing this traffic and uh, these IP addresses belong to these people. And you can have other routers that disagree with that. And so how do you know what is the state of the network? How do you know to send a packet to somebody uh, if you have conflicting routers that are routing packets differently? And so like, this is actually a big problem. Data centers, like if you have a bunch of computers that are mirroring data and you have one, let's say one data, like one computer goes offline and it falls behind the network or the rest of the, the computers. And then it comes back online and it's broadcasting a completely outdated state of your database. But now that, that computer has a vote. And so now you're, you're having issues with consensus where you don't know the state of something because you have all this conflicting information. 
And this, and this was all uh, basically written about and, and formulated as this problem called the Byzantine General's Problem uh, in the 80s, I believe this paper was released. And so uh, it, it basically um, talks about this thing uh, that we call a Byzantine fault. So in the Byzantine General's Problem, you have six generals and uh, these generals basically have to decide whether they're going to attack a city or they're going to retreat. And uh, whatever decision that they make, it has to be uniform. You don't want a half-hearted response. You don't want half the generals to attack, half the generals to retreat, because then everyone will just get killed. The generals that attack will get defeated, and then the enemy will come and rout the, the people who are fleeing, and then everybody will die. So whether you attack or retreat, you want to at least be in consensus of what you're going to do, because you have to do it in unison. And uh, so the problem uh, with this problem here, the Byzantine general's problem, is that you can give conflicting messages. And so let's say you have, instead of six generals, let's say you have three generals. And you have one general that wants to attack, and you have one general that wants to retreat. The third general could be mischievous, and he can tell the general that wants to attack, hey, let's attack tomorrow. And he can tell the general that wants to retreat, hey, let's retreat tomorrow. And then now you have a problem where the other two generals think that you have consensus on the network, but you really don't. And so that day comes around, and uh, one general attacks, one general retreats. I guess the third general's getting paid because he's a traitor. Uh, but your whole consensus system fails. And so this was formulated as the, the 3N plus 1 problem. For uh, N number of traitors in your army, you need 3 times N plus 1. So essentially 33%. So if 33% or more of your generals are traitors, you cannot achieve consensus. And this paper actually goes into uh, mathematical proofs that essentially say this is true and that there's no solution to this problem. Uh, you need at least 3N plus 1 trusted generals or valid peers in your, in your system in order to achieve a consensus. Any less than this, and the traders can collaborate, they can prevent you forming consensus in your network, and your system will fail because you'll fail to achieve any sort of consensus. And what's really cool about this is that Satoshi doesn't talk about this at all. Like he doesn't even mention Byzantine fault tolerance or Byzantine generals or, or anything. Um, but what he does talk about is essentially a solution to this problem without even stating it. So the cool thing about uh, this part of the paper is he sort of formulates that, you know, so if you attack the blockchain, well, first of all, you can't steal or create coins because all of that is signed by digital signatures that you can't forge. So the only thing you can really do is try and double spend. But uh, let's say attackers get together and they're like, hey, there's this really juicy transaction we want to reverse. Uh, if we all get together, we're going to mine and we're going to uh, try and reverse these transactions. Let's say this transaction happened six blocks ago, so we're going to have to like totally create this whole fork in the chain. But let's go for it. Let's just try and do it. And so what the paper proves is that even with a lucky start, even if this attacking uh, chain gets a lucky start and they get ahead in the beginning, 
if you have less than 50% of the hash power or you're generating less than 50% of the hashes for solving the proof of work, you will always fall behind the honest chain. You just will not be able to keep up with, with the, how would you put it? Just the distribution of the randomness in doing this hash function. Like you, over time, like even if you get a lucky start, because random is truly random, you might get six heads in a row. But over time, if you have less than 50% of the hash power, you will always fall behind. And so uh, he lays this out uh, and, and a couple of things. Uh, he, he points to this, uh, this one concept called like the gambler's ruin problem, where essentially if you're, if you're gambling in, in a casino and you're behind, you can never get ahead. Like you can, you can try and make your money back, but you're not going to be able to get ahead because you're always, you're always in a race with the honest people of this chain. And so they're always going to be ahead of you just simply because they have more hash power. They're making more guesses. So they're always going to be ahead. And what's really interesting about this, uh, if you want to spend time on it on the paper, is that it completely solves the Byzantine general's problem. Increasing fault tolerance from uh, 30, 33 plus percent to uh, essentially 49%. So now with proof of work, you can have a distributed network where you can have a consensus with a fault tolerance of 49%. So up to 49%, it's like really 49.99999% uh, of people on your network that are malicious, that are coordinating to to uh, attack consensus and get everyone else to either switch to uh, their consensus of the network or to just prevent anybody from reaching any sort of consensus, any sort of Byzantine fault. Uh, they need more than 49% uh, of the network to do it. So uh, this is actually really cool. And uh, Satoshi doesn't really highlight this much, but I, this is like probably one of the, the biggest innovations in the paper, even bigger than uh, blockchain. Because we thought this was unsolvable. And then he just like name drops um, Bitcoin and then just totally solves this problem without even addressing it by name, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so that is the end of the paper. So we've pretty much gone through the whole thing. Uh, and we're definitely running a little late. So I won't. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, figure, we'll figure out a way. We'll figure out a way. I mean, with, uh, with airplanes, they just add more sensors. Yeah. But you still run into the same problem where, uh, you know, it takes a certain number of sensors to fail. Uh, and those, and not just fail, but it takes a certain number of sensors to report what, is, what you think is accurate information, but they're actually in a fail state. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is all when Ethereum does the merge, it'll all be like worthless, anyways. We'll all just be on ETH. Yeah. <laughs>
So yeah, uh, that's the end of my presentation and uh, special thanks to Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, Super Testnet, uh, Tristan, who isn't here, Carr as well, thank you for hosting and everyone at PubLab. <laughs>